Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I, I look, I don't want to sort of tee something up uh, and not deliver here, but I am very excited about this conversation. Uh, I feel like I've had this conversation offline uh, at the bus stop, at the grocery store, waiting in the deli line at conferences. So uh, this is going to be, look, selfishly a pleasure to be speaking with Austin Allred. He's the co-founder and CEO of Bloom Tech. Before bl- founding Bloom Tech, Austin was the co-founder of media platform Grasswire. He co-authored the growth hacking textbook, Secret Sauce, which became a bestseller and provided him the personal seed money to build BloomTech. Uh, his disruptive ideas on the future of education, the labor market disconnect, and breaking down barriers to career opportunity at scale have been featured in the Harvard Business Re- Review, The Economist, Wired, Fast Company, TechCrunch, and The New York Times. He lives in Utah with his wife and kids, and you can find him on Twitter at Austin. That's A-U-S-T-E-N. Austin, great to be connected with you. Um, I mean, what a background here. <laughs> so it's it's sort of, you know, where to start. But l- let's start with this. Look, we, we want to talk about Bloom Tech. But to me, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here that you had experiences potentially, you know, from a personal perspective that fueled your desire to come up with Bloom Tech. Uh, talk a little bit about your path. Obviously, you've been able to grow things and have been successful at that. So it's not just about, I, I would imagine, starting a company. Uh, in that regard, but it's about doing something that you know is missing and or can be disruptive in a very positive way. So talk a little bit about your background and then why Bloom Tech is the is the canvas that makes the most sense for you as an artist. Yeah. So, you know, I have always been addicted to computers. I got the internet was my birthday present when I turned eight. So that was <laughs> uh, that will age date me a little bit, but uh, so grew up very much you know, loving the internet. And as a kid, it was the only way that you could be taken seriously and you could act like an adult and you could try to do adult things. And, um, and you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a 15 year old. So they just, you know, communicate with you based on your communication level. And then as I got older, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be in tech somehow, but I didn't realize that, uh, and at the time, tech wasn't what it is today, where it's a career path that you can just take. It was, do you want to be a programmer at an IT firm? And there were a little thing called startups, but it wasn't uh, wasn't quite to the scale it was now. So um, I ended up was in my, officially my junior year of college, but I'd taken enough AP classes that it was my, my second semester of actually attending college. And just felt very underwhelmed and felt very anxious to get into the tech ecosystem. So uh, the short version is I had a two-door Honda Civic. I drove out to Silicon Valley. I lived in that car for three or four months while I taught myself to code um, and got my first job that way. So So you have the classic, you lived in a car. Story. Yeah, I, I I literally lived in in a Honda Civic. Yeah. So okay, so let's just pause there. So let's talk about sort of your constitution because I I think it there's there's got to be something in your background. Is it in sort of the family DNA? Because I think that takes. I mean, I mean, courage is maybe not even the word. Uh, it it it's to me it's betting on yourself. It's 
it's putting all of your chips in the center of the table and knowing that, you know, no matter what the result, you're going to be okay. And I don't know, look now in today's, you know, present day, we talk about grit. Um, did that get expressed in other areas of your life, athletics, uh, you know, forms of competition when you were growing up? I mean, did you, were your parents, you know, CEOs? I mean, where did you get that from? Cause I don't think that that's something that is, uh, spread around most young people. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, my dad was an accountant and three of my four grandparents were teachers. So, um, we didn't, yeah, we didn't come from a risk tolerant background necessarily. And even, (laughs) you know, part of the reason was dropping out, you know, I was attending BYU, which I think cost something like $4,000 a year in tuition at the time. And I couldn't stomach the thought of paying that much in tuition, um, which will reveal itself later how conservative I can be financially, perhaps my detriment at times. Um, But I think uh, the thing, the the experience that made me most who I am today, if you're to, to, you know, stack rank the level of impact um, was I, I grew up in a Mormon family in central Utah. And so as a, God-fearing Mormon, every every Mormon male goes on a mission when they're 19 years old. So you submit papers and you say, you know, here are my grades. Here's how much I want to learn a language. Here's how much I want to go internationally. You save up your entire life. It you know, costs about $10,000. Um, you send it all in. And then a piece of paper comes back and says, you are assigned to serve in X. Um, and so I was actually assigned to serve in the Donetsk Ukraine mission, um, which no one had ever heard of until about a year ago, or I guess some people heard about it a little bit earlier than that. Uh, but yeah, I spent a couple years in Eastern Ukraine speaking Russian and that's where I really learned to work hard. And that's also where I learned to not be afraid to differ from what those around me were doing and to think, uh, I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned is I learned to not care about what everybody around me was doing and do what I felt was right. And that I think exhibited itself in dropping out of college, much to the chagrin of my entire family and uh, going to Silicon Valley. And, And it worked out for sure. Sense of agency, Austin. I mean, it sounds like you developed a sense of agency. Guess so. I, I, I grew up. I mean, I, perhaps it's not unique to me, but you know, when you go to school and you're in public school, you're just trying really hard to fit in. I kind of stopped caring, um, and I think that is difficult to ask of anybody, but was was very important to me in the. And not not only not caring what other people thought, but learning to trust in your own judgment enough to uh, to differ from what the norm is was uh, that was that was that and learning learning to work really hard were what the mission really taught me. I mean, that's what cynics of education, public education, will will you know spout out is that it it does not allow for agency in that regard. It's about you know sort of all you know fitting into one nicely uh, arranged box <laughs> of opinions and these sorts of things. How has that served you as we sort of now lean into the experience that you had on your mission and living in your car in Silicon Valley? Let's sort of fast forward in this, you know, and I, 
I appreciate when you say, look, I just didn't care. Like I, but it's not that you don't care. It's not an apathy, right? It's to me, it's more about filling that tank that you do have agency. You do, you can trust your gut, right? You're your own weatherman in that regard, your own meteorologist. Um, how has that served you well? And were there bumps along the, the entrepreneurial road when you think about, when you think back at all the different startups you've been engaged in where you couldn't really lean on that or you had to sort of maybe recalibrate your thought process on the role agency played in collaborative efforts to build companies? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I, I view it as, uh, you know, in your econ 101 class, um, there's the analogy that somebody will share of, you know, if an economist is walking downtown and they see a $20 bill on the street, they won't pick it up because an economist would say, well, if there's a $20 bill on the street then somebody would have picked it up already by definition, because there's something of value um, and there's so many people. And I think, um, and I don't necessarily blame public education for the difficulty of seeing those things, but I, I think everything is kind of structured in that way where all of the social pressure, I mean, humans have learned very efficient mechanisms and a lot of lessons that do make sense. I don't think, uh, you know, I'm not one to advocate for rejecting everything that has ever been learned or any social norm. Uh, it's really a matter of questioning, does this make sense? are the assumptions around why people do X different than the assumptions that I hold? And you, you kind of learn that, you know, Steve Jobs has a, a quote where he talks about how everything was just made up of people. And those people were not necessarily smarter than you. Um, there's a little bit of Darwinian, the good ideas tend to win out and the bad ideas tend to die off but you start to see the world as very moldable and very flexible. And so nowadays that exhibits itself in things like when, when I talk to people and they say, well, how, how can you run a school that doesn't give people degrees? That is the purpose of higher education is to get that credential uh, so that people can get a job. And, you know, obviously I'm biased by not holding the degree myself, <laughs> but you, you ask why and you question. And I think the, the mental model of thinking from first principles, um, which is going down to the actual roots of why something happens um, and reasoning up from there, as opposed to reasoning by analogy or looking at, you know, the way the world works and assuming that the world works in a specific way because that was the best way. Um, is you know, pretty fundamental to being to starting companies. Would you say you're driven by the word why, or it, the word why is a part of the, your sort of the, your vocabulary box of things that that allow you to stay who you are as you continue to grow and evolve just as a person? Yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, a willingness to ask why, uh, and beyond that, a willingness to ask why multiple times. There's often a very rational, very easy to grab explanation for something that makes assumptions or has 
uh, faulty reasoning around the edges or assumes a different set of circumstances. Um, and then you know, one of the things that drives me is just, I want things to be great, not mediocre. Um, and it's really easy. I mean, if, if you look at the education system that we're in now, it's easy to say, well, yeah, universities are suboptimal in some ways. And yeah, there's a lot of student debt, but like it does the job. Um, and whereas, you know, as you alluded to, I built uh, Bloom Tech partially to scratch my own itch. Um, you know, I look at, and if I can, if someone is going to college just to get a better job in tech, and I can save them three and a half years and pain, that is a massive difference in somebody's life. So, um, yeah, I'm inspired by people who want to take something that's okay and make it incredible. And I think that's really, really difficult to do. Um, but that's, yeah, that's something that I think drives me. So tell me if I'm far afield on this, but my experience in, in doing some prep and looking at Bloom Tech is, is and this is very oversimplified, but what I, what I appreciated, not just as a dad, but as someone who's worked in education for a number of years, is that I get the sense that you representing Bloom Tech and the student are basically betting on each other. It feels like there is a, there's a shared, you know, there, there's a syn synchronicity about it that you, if they succeed, you succeed. If you know what I mean? And, and there's this sort of fluid nature as opposed to, I think tr the traditional method, which would be, we don't really care about that. <laughs> it's about quantity, right? We just need numbers, 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 right? And then the student says, well, I just need this credential, but I got a very different feel that it is, you're, you're, as both entities, you're sort of looking out at the horizon together and going at a pace that makes sense for that individual and that they can bet on themselves and you can bet on yourself and your offering. Uh, am, am, I, am I far off the ranch or am I pretty close as to sort of maybe the tenor and spirit of a Bloom Tech? And, and please then share sort of the offering. No, that's, that's very accurate. So when, um, when we first got started, my, my background was in, uh, you know, I, I'd been working at a lending company. I shouldn't say my background. I'd been working for a couple of years at a lending company. And so when I started working within that company, I wanted to learn everything I could about how capital markets work, how risk works, really how money works from, you know, very fundamental levels. And then, you know, when we started Bloom Tech, the, the early focus wasn't what it is now. It was just, you know, hey, wouldn't it have been great if I didn't have to live in a car in the Bay Area to get started? Wouldn't it be great if you could just, you know, I, and the focus wasn't on money, just put a really great education online. And that was unique in you know 2016, 2017 when we were getting started, and we had the conversation five times a day that you can't teach people to code online because, look, there are these you know MOOCs out there and they have really low completion rates, um, and we said, well, why, you know, that doesn't make sense. There can be a really good online experience and just no one's built it yet. So let's build that. And then as we started along the path. Um, you know, when you study the education industry 
for you know post-secondary learners, you learn that it's really a game of how many people can you get enrolled and how much does it cost you in advertising to get people enrolled? Because obviously that's where the money comes from. Um, so we were just trying to do a better job of that in the early days. And some of the models that were winning there were if you can attach a university credential to a shorter non-university experience, you can say, this is the Harvard boot camp. People will say, oh, Harvard and enroll. Um, but that felt pretty empty to me. Um, and I was surprised that Harvard did that in the first place. And so we, you know, we started talking to people, trying to understand why they were enrolling in our school or not. And we were you know, barely even a school at that point. And we, what we found was that there are a couple of problems that ran in tandem with each other. One was, you know, the way students would express it is I don't have enough money to pay for this, which makes sense. The reason they're coming to your school is so that they can make more money. Um, and then the, the second underlying problem was, and I don't know if I should trust you. Um, so the way most schools solve that is by saying, you know, here is a lender and here's a bunch of marketing materials, so you should trust us. Um, but it, you know, having come from a background of, you know, risk management and lending, we started asking the question, well, why don't we hold any of the risk in this? Why are, why are our incentives so misaligned with our customers that, you know, why is the focus just getting you enrolled? Surely the more difficult part is actually getting you hired and producing a better outcome. Um, which leads you to say, why can't we guarantee an outcome or align incentives in some way? And if we are really good at, you know, helping you learn the skills that you need and helping you get a job, students are thrilled to pay for that. Um, and so what students were looking for was actually an outcome. And what schools were trying to sell was admissions. Um, so we kind of work our way backwards to say, well, how can we, how can we sell an outcome? And if the outcome isn't there, we should be on the hook as well as a student. Um, and we can actually afford mistakes where a student cannot. So if a student, you know, enrolls, takes out a ton of money in loans and doesn't get hired on the other side, they're dramatically worse off than they would have been if they never took that risk. So, a lot of students are never going to take that leap of faith and never figure it out. Um, but if we can, we should be able to share that risk. Um, and if we can do that, then not only does the emphasis move from let's get a bunch of people enrolled to let's get a bunch of people hired, which is far healthier. Um, but it also allows students to take risks that they otherwise might not be able to or be willing to. And so that you know, it took us a while to come to those conclusions, but it changed everything. Yeah. I mean, look, it's the antithesis of a story I'll share just briefly is that I years ago, just I don't even remember how I got sort of invited into this, but I was in a board meeting at a very prominent university. Um, and there was a discussion about a certain major where the cost of this graduate degree was like, I don't know, it was like 80,000 a year, something right, obscene in that regard. Do you know how many people they had placed? I don't know, not many. Zero. Zero. And the discussion wow. in, at this, you know, Institute of Higher Education was, should we keep this program? And you can imagine the answer. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I think that's that's another point. That <laughs> there, there, there are shades of gray, of course, but that, you know, to me, that does kind of bookend what you're talking about, which is, boy, if we want trust with the students that are going to matriculate through our systems, we've got to find a better way to, you know, to your point, should we not be holding some of the risk here? Yeah, and I think, you know, the university pushback to that would be, well, our purpose isn't helping people get better jobs. Our purpose is, you know, we're a research institution, we serve academia, we serve the pursuit of knowledge generally. Um, but the other misalignment is, well, then what does your marketing material say when you are convincing people to come to the school? Does it say you should pay us $80,000 for pursuit of knowledge generally and there will be no career outcome? Or does it say, hey, people with a master's degree earn way more over the course yeah, of their Well life positioned course. for the current economic climate. Right. So, <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I am not a person who thinks that liberal arts education shouldn't exist or that if you want to pay for that kind of a program, you're more than welcome to. Um, what I think is actually happening in most instances, however, is the average student, and you can look at surveys for this, something like 80% of the university population is enrolling specifically to get a better career outcome. Um, and that is by far and away the reason that they are enrolling in a university. And if you ask a university what their top priorities are, sometimes that's not even on the list. So you have people, you know, taking out in some instances, hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans in hopes of buying X and attending institutions that don't care about X. Um, and so we, we take a lot of flack from that because, you know, we don't teach, I, mean, I think I would argue we do teach critical thinking, but we, you know, we don't, we're not a liberal arts education. We don't teach morality. We don't teach ethics. We are, we solely exist to help you in your career path. We are a vocational school. We are a trade school, whatever you'd like to call that. Um, and I think students should be given that choice and should be aware of the trade-offs they're making when they're making that choice. And that's, that's my contention with universities. I don't have a problem. And, you know, politically, if we are saying, um, we need people to go to universities so that they can get a good job. We should authorize unlimited amounts of loans. We should recognize that in the cases where that's not happening, there's just, there's, you know, again, misaligned incentives. So we do that ourselves entirely. And I don't think that every school has to have its target be helping people make more money. But if that's what you're promising students and you're not delivering it and you have government backing and student debt to make that happen, then that's less than ideal. Let's close with this, Austin. What, do you, what would you say would be the moral of your story if, if the audience uh, hearing your response was uh, a young person that might be in high school? What's the moral of your story that you think would be inspirational and or maybe connect with today's current student? Uh, there, there are a few things. Um, one is... And this, this will be, I don't know if this is the moral of the story, but it's a point that I would make to a younger person. Um, make sure that the people you are asking about what path to take actually understand what the paths look like today. Um, and that's a, you know, I, 
if I had a dollar for every student who came to us and said, I went and got degree X because my parents and high school counselors said, if you go to this school, take out whatever it costs in loans and study the thing that you love and just go do that. That's, that's what every, you know, zero to 18 year old is hearing five times a day right now. And it's not actually accurate that that will produce a great outcome. So I guess um, my moral would be take ownership of your own decisions, think from first principles and, you know, be true to your own sense of decision-making about what outcomes will look like. Um, And that may run afoul of what some people expect. And I mean, that was what it was for me. My, we had a family intervention that was begging me to not drop out of college. Um, And my grandparents were first generation college grads and they were so honored to have that opportunity and it changed everything for them. And they felt like I was, you know, spitting in the face of that opportunity. Um, But I was actually choosing from a different set of paths, many of which were not available to them. And they didn't have or understand that context, nor did they understand that uh, attending college today is not the same as attending college, you know, 50 years ago. Um, So, yeah, you have to find a way to gain confidence in your own reasoning, your own, uh, and have enough agency to stick with those decisions. And you may be wrong at some time, but you will get much further in a much better way exercising your agency and risking being wrong than being unwilling to do so. Well, Austin, I, as we close, I, I find your, uh, your perspective refreshing and reflective of, of the current I think, uh, sort of state of our, our world in a lot of ways. And I think you're, the power of asking wine, believing in yourself and betting on yourself is incredibly empowering to, to young people. And I hope it's inspirational to those in leadership positions in education to continue to ask why, not just once, uh, twice, but you know, at, at very deep levels to really get at the grassroots of what we're doing, what's the spirit of what we're doing, what's the mission. And it sounds like you found another mission here with what you're doing at uh, BloomTech. You can go to bloomtech.com connect with, uh, with, with Austin and his, his colleagues. Uh, once again, we want to thank Austin Allred, the co-founder and CEO of Bloom Tech. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.